If you're listening to this, then at some point in your life, you have been aware of something, probably many things at many times, what someone is saying to you, how fast or slow your breathing is, where you are in the world. On its face, it's, it's a pretty mundane observation, but have you ever thought about it in more depth? What does it even mean to be aware of something, to be conscious? And why do the vast majority of people only have one consciousness? Will computers ever experience consciousness? This week on Mind Matters News, we have Dr. Angus Manuz joining us to discuss consciousness, split personalities, and the fascinating world of the mind-body problem. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Marks. Are we meat puppets limited to scientific analysis described totally by the laws of nature? The question is addressed in the so-called mind-body problem. The mind-body problem dialogue is part of a field called the philosophy of mind, and the debate has a very long history. The debate is especially important today because of artificial intelligence. If humans and our minds can be described by materialism, there is a chance that so-called artificial general intelligence, or AGI, is possible. AGI is the goal of designing a machine with all of the capabilities of humans. So discussion of the mind-body problem is of more practical importance now than ever. Our guest today to discuss this, we're honored to have Dr. Angus Manouche, who is a professor and chair of the philosophy department at Concordia University, and he's the past president of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. His research interests include philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, apologetics, and one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis. He's the editor of Religious Liberty and the Law, and he is the co-editor, along with Jonathan Luce and J.P. Moreland, of the Blackwell Companion to Substance Dualism. We will provide links for that in the podcast notes. Angus, welcome. It's, it's good to have you and talk to you. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, you and I met in 2011. It was a conference at Cornell. And the funny thing, you, you you go to conferences, you have introductions, and often you forget those introductions. But we introduced ourselves to each other when we both remember it because it was kind of unusual. <laughs> Could you relate that story? It's kind of amusing. Yeah, well, the part that I remember is that seeing that my name was uh, Angus, you quickly associated me with uh, Angus Young of ACDC. And, uh, you know, I kind of uh, regretted in, in light of the uh, the compensation which philosophers uh, receive that that simply uh, was not the case. Yeah, that was hilarious. If you're not familiar with ADC, they're a heavy metal group and their lead guitarist is Angus Young. He's kind of the front man for the group. And, uh, very different from Angus Manouche, but they both share the name of Angus. And I guess that Angus is a, is a common name in some places of the world, but you're only the second Angus that I'm aware of. Plus, you can, I think the audience can tell that you have, you have kind of an accent, but Manouche, I think you mentioned as a French name, but you have a British accent. What happened? Well, I grew up in England. My uh, father's parents were both from Normandy, France, however, so that's where the French surname comes from. Uh, my grandfather, though, uh, his folks were from Dundee, Scotland, and my mother decided to uh, give me a, a, a Scottish name. So I am slightly Scottish as well. So a bit of a strange mix. 
You know, I, I talked to a guy with that speaks the King's English, and I mentioned to him that in the United States, anybody that talks with a beautiful English accent sounds like their IQ is about 20 points higher. He interrupted me and he said, no, 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 30 points. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, he's right. So there's something about the sophistication of the British accent, which I think is very impressive for some reason across the United States. Well, let's get let's get to the, what we want to talk about. I know that you've, you are an expert in the philosophy of mind and including the mind-body problem. What is the, the mind-body problem? How can you explain it in a high level? Well, uh, the real question is how two such different realms can relate. The classical mind-body problem is if you think of mind and body as substances uh, in the fundamental category of thing, then it would seem that if something is physical, if it's a body, it's extended in space, it's located in space, it's publicly observable, it's quantifiable and measurable. But if we think of the mind as a thing, going back to uh, the former idea uh, of the soul, then the soul does not seem to uh, take up space, or at least not in the same way. It doesn't exclude other physical objects uh, from space. It has no definite location in space, and it's not the sort of thing that can be publicly observed as we expect in science. We're, we're acquainted with our mind or our soul uh, most directly through introspection, and I can introspect uh, my mind, and you can introspect yours, but I cannot observe your mind, and nor can I uh, introspect your mind. So you have these two very different realms, these two very different kinds of things. And the obvious question is, how can such two very different uh, kinds of thing interact? And uh, uh, Princess Elizabeth raised this question to uh, Rene Descartes, uh, asking, well, if the mind, for example, moves the body, it seems that bodies are moved by some sort of impulse or contact. But how can something which is non-physical uh, impart an impulse? How can it touch or contact uh, a body? And, and so really the, the, the mind-body problem is a question of what is the uh, medium or intermediary between these two realms? And if one cannot answer that question, many will argue, well, then you have to abandon the idea of uh, dualism, that there are these two uh, different kinds of, of substance uh, altogether. Okay. I, you know, I think, help me out because I'm not an expert in the field, but it seems to me that we only have empirical evidence of the differentiation of the mind and the body recently through so-called near-death experiences. Uh, this has got a lot of play uh, in the last, I don't know, few decades, because right now we have the ability to raise people who have been clinically dead, and they talk about their minds separating from their body. So it is, I, I think this is empirical evidence that the mind and the body are not the same, or that there's a part of the part of the mind which is which is not part of the body. Um, is there any other evidence? And I, what do you think of, do you, do you think this near-death experience is compelling evidence for the difference between the mind and the body? 
Well, there's two kinds of evidence that, that one could give. One is just from a phenomenological analysis of the mind. What is it like to have an experience? Uh, the fact that we can have thoughts about other things, intentionality. So subjectivity and intentionality are properties that we meet in introspection, but which none of the physical sciences seem to disclose. When you look at somebody's uh, brain in a brain scan, uh, or when you think of a person in terms of chemical or electrical or other physical events, there's no reason ever to postulate either subjectivity or intentionality. Now, the, the near-death experiences that have recently uh, been studied, it's really only recent because it's only in the past few decades that there have been a large number of people who have been successfully resuscitated and are able to report these experiences. The, the evidence here, which is most extraordinary and telling, are so-called evidential near-death experiences. Um, that is to say that the uh, patient uh, reports from the time at which there was no measurable brain function, uh, witnessing numbers on medical machines uh, or the location of items like, like shoes or, or facts that were subsequently independently verified, um, they, they actually recall things which we know objectively are true um, which they could not have observed from their position when they were unconscious, certainly could not have seen through their eyes because their eyes were closed, and they cannot be written off by uh, hallucinations or uh, waking brain phenomena as the person returns because, of course, um, if it were a hallucination, the chances that that hallucination would line up with something we know independently to be fact are next to nothing, especially when somebody accurately reports uh, all the numbers, uh, the serial numbers on a medical machine, and those numbers would only be observable in the normal way if you were uh, many feet above where the patient's body was. They, they seem to provide evidence that there is a possibility of uh, consciousness which is separate from distinct from normal uh, brain functioning. That's, that, that's, that's just fascinating. I, I, I find this uh, topic just very fascinating. You mentioned Descartes, and so this mind-body problem has been around for a long time. What's, uh, what's some of the history of the mind-body problem? Well, uh, one can probably go back further. Um, if you think about the, the history of thinking about the soul, initially the the soul was thought of as the, the form of the body, what gives a, a, a body its life, as well as in rational beings like ourselves, our consciousness. This was the understanding that you have in um, Aristotle and, and Aquinas, uh, for example. But the, the mind-body problem starts to become severe when you get to the point of uh, Descartes, because Descartes does an analysis of the essence of different kinds of substance. And he's very careful about this. When he looks at the mind, he sees that what's distinctive about the mind is that its states and activities cannot be separated from it. Um, so that you can be um, wanting something and thinking about something and feeling about something, but it's one eye that's doing all of them uh, and likewise, you can have multiple experiences at the same time, yet they all belong to one subject. 
And so he recognizes that his thoughts and experiences cannot be separated from him. What's different about physical things is they seem to be aggregates of separable parts. So if you think about a uh, table, for example, it's made up of parts, uh, the tabletop and the legs, or you could keep on going down to the level of molecules and atoms and all the rest of it. And it's possible for those parts to be detached and for them to exist separately. But it doesn't seem that thoughts and experiences are like that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't seem that um, one person's pain could actually exist outside their mind or be transferred to anybody else's mind either. Part of its identity is tied to the one who is feeling the pain. And the same thing for thoughts in general. And so his analysis uh, seems to show that uh, mind and uh, matter are fundamentally different kinds of thing or substances. And so from that point on, we seem to have an interaction problem. Um, Many philosophers, uh, materialists like Hobbes, but even people sympathetic with Descartes raised this issue that they couldn't really see what was the mechanism or the medium by which mind and matter could interact. So when I want to raise my arm, my wanting seems to be something Uh, an immaterial property of my mind, and yet my arm raising is obviously a physical, physiological, measurable activity. How do we get from one to the other? Uh, Likewise, if I damage my toe and then nerve signals are sent uh, through my nervous system, eventually I have a, a quail, that is to say there's an experience of what it's like to be in pain. How is it that there is a kind of a translation between the purely physical and objective and the mental and subjective? Um, That, I I think, and by the way, people have thought you can solve this problem later on. They say, oh, well, I can believe an organism is purely physical as a substance, but we have two different kinds of properties. We have physical properties and mental properties. However, Jaeguan Kim... I think rightly, points out that um, here there is what he calls Descartes' revenge. People who think they can (laughs) solve the the problem this way uh, haven't thought hard enough because the fact remains that mental properties like subjectivity, intentionality, that your thoughts are about things, um, are so different than physical properties that the uh, mind-body problem arises all over again at the level of properties. In other words, why should my thinking about something or my wanting a drink of milk, why should that mental property have any ability to produce changes in physical properties in my body, such as opening the the, the fridge? So the mind-body problem actually is much harder to get out of uh, than people think. And so this, of course, led in the 20th century Uh, to many philosophers embracing physicalism and saying, well, really, uh, the only way that we can answer this problem is to somehow show that the mental either reduces to the physical or at least it's entirely determined by the physical so that we don't really end up giving this um, independent causal power to to the mind. Yeah, I, I, I... 
I've done a lot of work in artificial intelligence on emergence. And I think if you're a materialist, you have to believe that evolutionary-wise, that the mind developed as an emergence of the brain. Yet there's all of this evidence that indeed, you know, this is not the case, that the mind is much greater than the body can ever be. So I'm sure that there's a number of different models of the mind-body problem. What, what, are, what are some of the main mind-body problem models that are popular and discussed today? Well, there are some, like uh, Richard Swinburne, who is really a defender of a modified form of uh, Cartesian substance dualism. And he, along with other uh, substance dualists, has gone back to this original challenge and, and argued that it's not compelling. Uh, so, so one solution is simply to point out that, in fact, in general, there doesn't have to be a conceptual or logical connection between causes and effects. That isn't even true at the physical level. There isn't really any logical connection between a drop in temperature and water turning to ice. Nonetheless, that we discover that there is a reliable connection between the two. And, and so uh, some dualists have argued that we don't have to have a theory about how mind and body interact to accept that we have good evidence that they interact. And so Swinburne, for example, gives the example that we've known for centuries that if you stick a pin in someone, it causes pain. So there is a clear path between the physical event and a psychological reaction. And it appears, all our evidence is, that there is a clear causal connection between a mental volition to raise one's arm and the arm uh, being raised. So, so one solution is just to say, um, we will go with the facts. This is what happens, even if we cannot give a fully satisfying uh, explanation. Others, though, would try to say, well, we'll have to reconceive uh, the mind. We'll have to view it as supervening or emerging from uh, the brain. This, though, ends up with a serious difficulty, which, again, Kim addresses. If you want to take the physicalist line and say that the physical really is where the causal power resides, and then you say, well, from that, these thoughts emerge, it seems that those thoughts have to be epiphenomenal. They can't really cause anything because they're preempted by the states of the brain. That's a big word. Could you define epiphenomenal? Yeah, epiphenomenal means that something is caused by something else. So your, for example, your desire to open the fridge is caused by a brain state. But on, on this view, your desire is not what causes your body to open the fridge. Your brain state does. And you see this outrageous view, for example, in Daniel Wagner's book, The Illusion of Conscious Will, where he says that uh, in reality, your desires to do things are just causally powerless previews of what your brain is going to make your body do. Now, most physicalists don't want that. They would like to have a, a view of mental causation because um, after all, if we don't do things because of our beliefs and desires, it looks like our behavior isn't rational. If I don't, for example, write down uh, the answer to a logic uh, problem, 
because I could see that that's what followed from certain premises. In other words, because of my mental reasoning, then it looks as if I'm not really reasoning. Rather, I am doing much the same as most of our computers do. I look as if I'm reasoning because uh, the engineers put in an arithmetic and logic unit, which guarantees that my operations agree with reasoning. But it's not that we think the ordinary computer, at least, has any insight into logic. It doesn't see that that conclusion follows. It's simply designed so that it will reach the correct conclusion. So, so that there's, there's problems with these kinds of uh, physicalist solutions. And it's interesting that over time, they have moved more and more in non-reductionist uh, 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 directions. There are more and more who, who will use the language of emergence, and yet they seem to be in an unstable place. They want the mind to be able to do something because they recognize that if your thoughts don't really direct your actions, they're no longer rational. We can't make sense of, of why you do things. Trouble is, there are people like Jaeguan Kim waiting to say that it's hard to see how the uh, mental qualities, the mental properties of you could cause anything. He calls this the, the, the exclusion problem because everything about your states is really caused by the brain. Aren't those brain states also sufficient to cause the next state of your nervous system and also everything that your body does? And if they are, then there really, really isn't any room for your mind to do anything. It becomes a redundant uh, sort of rider, kind of like the surf uh, on the top of a wave. So it's thrown up by the brain, but there's no work for it really to do. Or Huxley's analogy was uh, with, with a steam locomotive, the steam you know, drives the engine, and it also is used for the whistle. But the whistle's blowing doesn't contribute anything to the motion uh, of the locomotive. Uh. And, and that's where you seem to end up with that sort of problem. And, and then in, it's amazing now that there are positions that are being endorsed which would have seemed quite desperate, um, such as panpsychism, such as the idea, well, maybe everything physical has something mind-like uh, about it, uh, and so that eventually mind-like properties uh, emerge. So there's been extraordinary proliferation of theories, and uh, about the only um, thing that people can agree on in philosophy of mind is that all of them have problems. You know, the one thing they have in common is, is that they all seem to um, have serious uh, difficulties and are unsatisfactory uh, in one way rather than another. So that leads me to the question, what is your take? Where do you fall in these different models? Where I would fall on this is I think there is some truth to substance dualism, although I don't myself entirely like the Cartesian uh, approach. Um, I, I think that um, Augustine was right that we can think of uh, the, the soul or the mind as being um, present in space. It's just we have to think in terms of different ways things can be present. After all, uh, when God is, we speak of him as being omnipresent, uh, we don't think that that is by way of being a physical uh, object. 
uh, or by excluding other physical objects, he can be present wherever physical objects are. And Augustine's view is that the soul is present in the body wherever sensation is. Um, so it isn't somehow uh, this this bizarre entity that Descartes seemed to uh, describe that had no uh, real location. But I think as well, it's 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 unsatisfactory to just say that, well, mind and body interact, that's it, and it's a mystery, but we have good evidence that they do. I would hope that we can say something illuminating. And my own view, and I hear I'm influenced by my background in computers, is that I see all the time evidence that there is transmission of information between two realms. Oh. So when a computer scientist thinks of... Uh, an algorithm in the abstract, such as, say, the quicksort. Well, then, once he has that idea... D describe this quicksort. I guess it's a way of arranging random numbers in order. Is that right? Yeah, the idea of the quicksort is just that you have a, a list of elements in random order. It selects a, a pivot, and then it, it, it's a kind of amazing recursive function that partitions the set and then it once for each of those subsets, it partitions them. And uh, it's really a, a, a brilliant, brilliant algorithm. And when it's all done, everything has been uh, sorted just by dividing them into uh, the categories of pivot, things less than the pivot, and things greater than or equal to the pivot over and over uh, again. It's a thing of real beauty. So, so you have an algorithm now uh, that is a step-by-step -step recursive procedure to do something. Yeah, I mean, the point is that it is. It's a universal procedure. It transcends any physical embodiment in this way. That once you have that correct algorithm and you have verified it, you can write an indefinite, potentially infinite number uh, of programs to implement it. It could be... a um, you know, encoded at the hardware level an indefinite number of times. So the idea is very abstract and it can be encoded physically over and over again. Well, what's interesting is we just went from something which is intangible and abstract, the algorithm, to an implementation, right, which it ultimately is, is uh, a machine switches being on and off, which is thoroughly physical. And yet information exists in both forms. So my view is that information has the right sort of Janus-faced quality to be the intermediary between mind and body. Mm -hmm. Simple everyday example is reading and writing. When I read, my eyes interact with physical marks on, on a page. And yet, as a result, I have thoughts, then I can store memories and it seems that these engrams uh, and you know in my in my brain they're physical as well and, and likewise as, as i'm thinking about an essay I, I have ideas in my mind they're translating the things that i can write down so m my thinking is that we need to think of the the human being as a integrated system and that integrated system has within it an automatic translation function. And what that means is that we can go from, for example, an abstract um, volition where 
you'll notice that when you want to raise your arm, you don't have to have taken a PhD in physiology and know what's really going on, right? Right. You have an incredibly abstract specification, raise my arm. And every time you do it, it's probably different. And yet the a motor program, or probably a suite of motor programs, takes over. So what happens? I think what happens is that your volition is translated into a physical instruction that then implements that volition. Likewise, going the other way, when you uh, stub your toe and signals are sent back to the brain, there is an automatic translation that then gives you a subjective feeling of pain, which we say is in the toe. It's kind of interesting. It points to where the damage is, which is what you need to know, but it doesn't tell you all about the specific neurological events that have gone on. And you wouldn't want to know that anyway, because what really guides your action are, are very general things. We, we don't, it would be a very poorly designed system if every time we wanted to raise our arm, we'd have to know how to adjust, um, you know, each and every molecule in our, in our arm or what specific uh, pattern of nerve signals we would have to send. Well, then we'd be unable to act. And likewise, if what matters is that I don't uh, stub my toe again, all I've got to remember is, you know, don't, you know, push your toe like that rather than <laughs> worrying about how I did it this time because the, the odds are I'd never do the same physical movement again. Yeah, right? some, of us, some of us are slow learners, I guess. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, this is great. Let me, you know, we've gone for a long time here, but I still have one more question that I want to ask you. And I wonder if you've thought about this. You know, artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence now is pushing towards a machine that can totally duplicate the functions of the human. Now, if dualism is true and the mind is not totally contained in the brain, there's something non-algorithmic which is happening external to the human mind or the human brain, if you will. And that seems to have great implications on whether or not artificial general intelligence can ever be implemented. If indeed dualism is true, doesn't that mean that we will never be able to have artificial general intelligence where we have a strict duplication of human performance? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think that there will be artificial general intelligence in the sense that there are very sophisticated learning algorithms that can um, generalize and so they can move um, from their initial training domain to work in new areas. So at the level of just being able to formally solve problems, that's to say that there is a transformation from uh, a problem to a solution, I think that in that sense, you could say there'll be artificial general intelligence. However, what you're asking about is, can it, can it, will it really duplicate everything about the human mind? And there I think, no, because I don't see any reason um, from these amazing enhancements of the complexity of these systems to think that the system would move from not having subjective awareness to having it, uh, or from moving to uh, its states having true intentionality to be about anything beyond uh, themselves. So I think that the fundamental issues are metaphysical. We're, we're aware 
that there's something it's like to be us and that we can think about the world. Uh, and we can also think about things which is arguable uh, no physical system ought to be able to think about. Abstract principles like the laws of logic or when we prove theorems about prime numbers. Well, no physical system has ever physically interacted with any of these things. So the very contents of our thoughts seem to suggest that we have access to a realm. In a way, it's a somewhat platonic realm, but without getting into that issue, that certainly a, a realm of things which are not purely physical. Uh, we know, for example, lots of things about the set of integers, an infinite number of integers, and we can prove theorems, by, for example, by mathematical induction that apply to every one of them, but all physical causal interactions seem to be finite. How then can a, an AI physical system ever get to the point where it can truly be said to understand or know things about these sets? Yes, it will be able to follow through rules that will come out with the right output that agrees with the mathematician's output. This is true, but I don't think it can, it can be said really to understand uh, what an infinite set is or what prime uh, numbers are. Even on the most fundamental level, a computer can add the numbers two and three, but it has no understanding of what the numbers two and three is, nor does it really understand addition. Uh, it can do the operation, but has no understanding of what's going on. And so, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, where we have a strict duplication, not a mimicking, I think mimicking is possible, but a strict duplication of human performance, uh, I don't think that that's, that's going to be possible. I think that that is a hard ceiling for artificial intelligence. There is a lot of research happening in modeling consciousness. Panpsychism, quantum consciousness, and integrated information theory are are examples of consciousness models that have been getting a lot of press and visibility lately. Before talking about consciousness, it's important to define consciousness. I have been in arguments with people, and we go for a long time, and then at the end, we take the time to define the terms we're talking about and find out that, heck, we agree, <laughs> we wasted all our time arguing. So it's, it's important, I think, before talking about a topic to define it. So First, what is the definition of consciousness? Is there a widespread agreement to this definition? Well, the problem is it's an ambiguous term that is used to denote distinct ideas. There is one kind of consciousness, which philosophers of mind have spent a lot of time on, called phenomenal consciousness, which is basically experience, your awareness. So it comes along with the idea of what it is like to see a red rose, or to smell that red rose, or to feel pain. Is this what would be called qualia? I think you yes. pronounce it different than I do. Qualia? Yeah, yeah. Qualia or qualia. qualia. So, okay. so, yeah. So the idea, uh, it was once called, uh, they once called raw feels, because it, there, is, there is something it is like when somebody steps on your toe, or if you get... Uh, an unexpected uh, check from from uh, someone, for example, right? There's a <laughs> there's a uh, <laughs> there's a subjective experience that you have, and it seems to be directly accessible to you. You're aware of it. Um, you can't really deny that you're having the experience, 
And in some sense, although some philosophers question this, you have privileged access to it. In other words, we we take a dim view when somebody is um, writhing in pain, if somebody else says, oh, no, you're not really in pain. All right, of course, they could be acting, but if they feel that they're in pain, they're not going to listen to anybody else telling them that they're not because they're aware of it directly through introspection. H however, it's not the only notion of consciousness. Uh, Ned Block tried to distinguish what he called access consciousness, and here the idea is more cognitive. It moves from experience to representational content. Uh, so, for example, if you're solving a problem in logic or mathematics, there is a content to your thinking. That content might not come with any particular qualia uh, or subjective experience, and yet it is accessible to your reasoning. So his idea was that you could perhaps have some qualia that has no particular content. So you just sort of have a vague pain, but it's not a pain that is pointed to anything. And you could also perhaps have thoughts with no associated um, qualia or experiences, or you could have both. Um, so a lot of times, you know, when you're thinking about something abstract, you might you might write something. So you're thinking about prime numbers, but you you actually use a symbol to indicate them. So then you would have both at the same time, but they do seem to be distinct. And then the other kinds of consciousness appear, it seems, particularly in human beings, we are also self-conscious, so that we are aware of our own awareness. You can, for example, enjoy a sunset, but you can also step back and think about your awareness you know, I've never thought of that. I've never thought of that. Being self-conscious is kind of a meta-consciousness, isn't it? Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And in, and in fact, there, there seems almost to be no end to the levels uh, of it. This is something actually that Hegel noticed. So for example, assuming that we have good reason to believe that other people have minds, right? I can, um, first of all, I'm, 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 perhaps I've noticed you, and then I'm aware that I'm noticing you. So now um, I am self-conscious, but then I start to think <laughs> that you're conscious. So now I'm conscious of your being conscious, of me being conscious, of your being conscious, and there, there seems to be almost no end to the levels that you could um, add. Thankfully, we normally don't, right? But we, we in principle, can become aware of, on many, many levels. And, and maybe one of the most interesting uh, is what um, the late Lynn Baker uh, called uh, the first-person perspective. And she noticed that we can be aware, as it were, from the inside of what our life will be like. So when you're sort of thinking to yourself, you know, will I cry at my son's wedding, right? That's very different than saying, Will Angus Manoj cry at his son's wedding uh, or using, using either a name or a definite description? No, I'm thinking about what it will be like to be me going through that. Mm -hmm. And that shows I have a, an understanding of myself persisting over time. And likewise, we, re we regret things that we did uh, in the past or we think about vacations, if such things ever come back again, right, that we are 
thinking about what it is going to be like for us to be in those perspectives. And we have a pretty good ability of mental simulation that allows us to empathize. We can't introspect other people's mental states, but we can, to some degree, think what it would be like to be that poor person who is suffering now. Uh-huh. You know, I have, I have this experience all the time. I think so much about my consciousness in this meta state that I don't enjoy life as much as I think I should. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm enjoying life, and then I think, hey, I'm enjoying life. And I start thinking about the uh, my, my consciousness experience, and the entire joy of the experience kind of disappears. It's, uh, it's fascinating. You, know, you mentioned qualia. In artificial intelligence, I use this as an example of why artificial intelligence will never exist in the general sense where you're going to have a duplication. Uh, qualia, for example, is our perception of the color red. And I use the example that how are you going to explain the color red to a person that has had no sight since birth? You can't do it. You can explain its properties, its wavelength, uh, that apples are red and other things, but the actual experience is non it cannot be communicated. And if that is the case, how the heck are you going to be able to write a computer program to explain to a computer what the color red is? Qualia is not algorithmic. It can't be computed. Right. And that ties in well with the, the famous example of uh, Mary going back to uh, Frank Jackson. She, he imagines a, a woman, Mary, in a room where everything is black and white, and she is black and white as well. And she has studied and knows every scientific fact that there is about the physiology of color vision. Trouble is, she's never actually seen anything red. And then one day she leaves the room and for the first time sees a red rose. It does seem that she has acquired some new knowledge. She knows now what it is like to see red. And... Um, now, it's interesting. One can one can get around things indirectly. So colorblind people can stop at, at at stop signs, right? Even though they don't have a red quail, because they know what the function of that stop sign is. Uh -huh. yes. And they they can, in a sense, talk about red things, and they they know what somebody means in a sense when they say that blood is red, for example. But they don't have that same direct intuitive understanding as the person who was actually seen red. You know, one of the uh, one of the evidences in near death experiences is people who are are, are blind from birth. They have the ability in their near death experiences to go outside of their body and actually see. So they experience qualia that they have never experienced before in their life. I find that fascinating and really a strong evidence of the mind-body problem of dualism. Yeah, uh, blind near-death experiences are absolutely uh, extraordinary because they recount information that uh, using color terms for colors which they have never actually seen with their, their, their eyes. And uh, that, that, that's, that's quite extraordinary because it seems as if they had some kind of independent access to them. Of course, it's a difficult question. How could we know, um, you know, what was it like to have that experience? Mm -hmm. um, that's, a, that's, that's an, an almost unanswerable question, I, I suppose. But it is remarkable that they can recount things using language that describes things which they have uh, never witnessed. 
Okay, let's get back to the uh, some of the models of consciousness here. Um, you mentioned this in the last podcast, panpsychism. This seems to me to be a cop-out to people that can't define consciousness in materialistic form. Yeah, panpsychism does seem to me a rather desperate move. It, 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 it wants to say that within all of matter, it either has a mind or in pan-proto-psychism that, it, that it's sort of incipiently mind-like, and that therefore the mind is somehow a potentiality that's built into matter, and it's just a matter then of getting the right configuration, and you will get all the wonders of mind appearing. One of the problems with this, though, is, of course, the unity of consciousness, because if these individual particles are mind-like, and then they form together, what you would predict and expect is the emergence of many consciousnesses. And in fact, we find the most striking fact about consciousness is that it's uh, unified. So that, that problem, which is also a problem for physicalism, right? Because, I mean, physicalism has this very complex brain, and we now know for certain that the um, different parts of the brain are used for uh, processing information about different parts of an object, and yet in consciousness, that object is one thing, like a, a blue ball. It's not as if there is a consciousness of blueness and a consciousness of being a ball, and they're <laughs> separate from one another. There, there's this objectual unity, and I think that that combinatorial problem is, is, is a strong problem for panpsychism, just as it is for materialism. Yeah, I think the idea of assigning uh, consciousness to matter the same way you assign mass or energy or something like that is really stretching things. So there are still people that are that are really backing the concept of panpsychism. And I suppose if you're a materialist, you don't have a lot of options, but that's is one of your options. You know, another, another model of consciousness is so-called interest integrated information theory. I had a chat with one of my mathematical heroes, Gregory Chaitin, and we talked about this and I confess to him, I did not understand integrated information theory as being popularized today by Christoph Koch. He wasn't the originator, but he's the popularizer of it. And uh, he admitted to me, and I was kind of surprised. He says, yeah, I don't understand it either. This brilliant man didn't understand uh, integrated information theory. In his case, he probably hasn't dug into it as much as he could. Uh, do you know anything about integrated information theory, and do you have any opinions on it? Yeah, I've looked at it. Um, it's a somewhat interesting uh, uh, approach. It admits the hard problem of consciousness, uh, namely that from nothing we know physically can you predict or explain consciousness. So it suggests that we go about it in the opposite direction. What, what it basically says is that we first do an analysis of the essence of conscious experiences, and we, we call them in the theory the axioms. This is kind of where we're going to begin, and we're going to accept consciousness as it presents itself. Now, that side of it, I think, is admirable. I, I, I get disturbed by, uh, you know, eliminative materialists like Paul Churchland, who seem to deny that we're really conscious or that we that we even have beliefs and desires. But these phenomena are there, and that's denying the facts. So he starts by accepting that there is an accessible, intrinsic character of consciousness, 
and then from that tries to infer, well, what would the physical correlates of consciousness be like to support these characteristics of consciousness? So it's sort of like a reverse engineering project. And 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 what's interesting too is that it it's it wants to be a scientific account. It wants it wants to uh, make scientifically testable uh, claims about what the state of the uh, the cortex would have to be in order for you, you know, to have a conscious experience. And and the idea is that it's it's correlated with the ability to have integrated representations of a certain kind. And, you know, so that when you're comatose or, or drifting off to sleep, what's happening is that ability to form those representations breaks down. And that's the point at which consciousness breaks down. So I, I think it's um, worth following and uh, looking into it. I, I tend to think, though, it, there, there are going to be some obvious problems with it. It it is offering, in effect, a, uh, an allegedly causal account of consciousness. But the problem is that there is nothing about those physical substrates that really gives you any reason to expect subjectivity to arise. And there is nothing about those states that really explains intentionality. So you'll see sometimes it will talk about the the structure or even the geometry of these representations. I'm not sure what's being said anymore because it seems like there are now physical metaphors being used of uh, our thoughts. So when I think about a triangle, um, my thought is not triangular. Um, and intentionality, it really doesn't reduce to anything physical for, for some fairly obvious reasons. I can think about the future, but the future cannot be physically causing me to think about it. I can think about the Eiffel Tower right now, and it's not causally influencing me. And I can also think about non-existent objects like elves and hobbits. So the difficulty is, even if you could find some of these causal correlates, most likely they are just preconditions. It may very well be that Normally, if your brain is not in a certain state, you won't be conscious of various things. That, that's the kind of thing I would expect scientists to be able to give good evidence for. But there's going to be a gap between these causal preconditions for you to be conscious and explaining what it is that you are thinking about or what it is that you are feeling. There's a content there, and that intentionality doesn't seem to me to reduce to uh, anything physical or be explained by those uh, states of the of, of the brain. Okay, <laughs> I, I I think I have a better understanding now of integrated information theory than I did before. I, I read a report that Christoph Koch gave his theory of integrated information theory to an audience of computer programs who were very hopeful of a future of artificial general intelligence, and they did not like. Christoph Cox claims that this would be not computable in the near future, that we had a long way to go in the development of the future. So that's rubbing people the wrong way, I guess, in some, in some cases. Okay, the other, um, another model of consciousness of which I am aware is so-called quantum consciousness. 
I'm really interested in this because reading the works of Roger Penrose, he maintains that the humans can do non-algorithmic things. And he looked around at the entire universe and he says, where do things happen in our universe that are not algorithmic? And his conclusion was only in quantum mechanics, when you have a collapse of a wave function to a specified outcome, do we have something which is non-algorithmic. So I don't know if this relates to quantum consciousness, but there is a theory and a lot of work done in that area. What's going on in quantum consciousness? Yeah, so the idea of quantum consciousness is that quantum phenomena don't seem to develop in the same deterministic or algorithmic way as things in uh, classical physics, and that this might explain uh, human creativity and uh, free will um, and other powers of the mind which seem to be incompatible with classical uh, deterministic um, physics. So one uh, view in this um, area, you mentioned um, Penrose, his, his, his work is rather speculative because he's looking at quantum gravity and those ideas have not really been um, sorted out and resolved to this point. But, um, you know, Henry Stapp, following um, a particular interpretation of quantum mechanics, takes the view that perhaps uh, what's going on is that the, the brain is a quantum system at the level of um, the ionic activity. And what that means is that um, there can be a superposition of possible states of the brain each one of them, for example, could represent a template for a different action. So you're deciding, let's say, which of five movies to go watch or watch at home. And there they all, uh, these templates exist in superposition. They all have a certain probability um, of being selected, but no one of them has been selected. What is it that explains why in the end you watch one movie rather than the others? Well, going back to von Neumann, von Neumann had the idea that what's remarkable about quantum physics um, is that it seems that the observer makes a difference to the evolution of the system. So you can have this system where you have all of these possible states and you've got this wave function. What is it that makes the wave function collapse? Why is it that one of these states actually becomes actual? Well, von Neumann suggested that maybe it's the act of measurement. Now, he himself didn't distinguish between a mental act of measurement or a, or a machine doing the measurement, but Stapp does. Stapp speculates maybe the brain is a, is a quantum system, and what consciousness adds is selective attention. So when you're thinking of five things that you can do, the one that you end up um, focusing on and selecting is fixated, and then that ends up being the one that is realized and you end up actually doing. So perhaps it is, as it were, that your, your mind measures your brain uh, and that your consciousness causes a, this collapse of the wave function, and that goes on to explain the particular um, action that you do. And, and that would be compatible with a very strong view of free will called libertarian free will because no physical state of your brain determined what you were going to do next. It was just your conscious uh, attention that really decided in the end which of those possible actions that you, that, that, that you did. 
Uh, you, you weren't simply robotically forced to do it by states going on in your brain as, as, in, as in Wagner's uh, system. You know, is, is quantum consciousness rooted in materialism? Can you look at a materialistic model of consciousness, appeal to quantum consciousness, and say this is materialistic? Gosh, well, that's a tricky question. If most materialists, their paradigm is really set by older 19th century views of physical science. And so by definition, this goes beyond that. However, of course, if one defines materialism in terms of the latest theories of physical science, then you could say that, well, if um, physical science starts to allow a realm for consciousness, then I can embrace it. But notice what it does. It will end up, in a way, trivializing one of the big debates between dualists and materialists. Because if we allow that consciousness is something in itself, sui generis. Sui generis? Not reducible to anything else. In other words, it is a something of its own type or, or, or genus. So it's analogous to in the history of physics, right, when they thought that electromagnetic radiation required the medium of the ether, and then you had the Michelson-Morley experience that showed that, no, it doesn't require that. It's its own thing, and we no longer regard electromagnetism as, as some, somehow reducible to uh, something that's mechanical. Well, likewise, what if physics will conclude finally, yeah, this is just hopeless. We can't reduce consciousness to any ordinary physical phenomena, but mm -hmm. we just recognize it as its own kind of thing. And in fact, we need it in order to have a complete physics. Because after all, if you want that theory of everything uh, that Stephen Hawking wants, in the end, as Thomas Nagel said, the theory of everything has to include the scientist as well as the world the scientist observes. Well, if I'm going to have an account that is that fully uh, explains what's going on when a scientist measures a system in quantum physics and deals with entanglement and all these other things, what if it turns out that that account must appeal to consciousness? Does, does consciousness then become part of physics? Mm -hmm. If it does, then in a way, the debate between physicalists and dualists sort of dissipates because the physical has just absorbed, you know, consciousness. But the dualists would have won in this sense, that they would have cried uncle and admitted that, yeah, consciousness doesn't reduce to any of these other things, which is what they had been claiming for, you know, um, a few centuries. Here is the big AI question. This is what I'm interested in. I know that I am conscious. Is there a way we can test for consciousness in others? And if we can, could we apply this test of consciousness in others to artificial intelligence? Can, can I test for consciousness in you? How would I do that? Well, it's a difficult question, but it begins, I think, with how we are going to generalize on the basis of our data. We find that all individuals naturally, as they develop as children, they develop the theory of mind, and that leads them to naturally believe that other people have minds like they do. We are also aware that we do have a mind directly through introspection. 
and we can see that other people are relevantly like us in every other respect. So it's very reasonable to conclude because it's sort of our natural judgment, but because other people are like us in every other respect to conclude that they have minds. The problem is that when you move to artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence is so different from human beings that now it is not an obvious or reliable uh, ex extrapolation. So when I test your consciousness by seeing if you produce pain behavior, part of the reason that that is um, convincing to me is I'm already convinced that you're the kind of being that could have a mind. With AI, the problem is I'm not already convinced of that. Um, and because the system is so different than us, we run into the problem that it might produce all the same behavior. It might simulate all of the behavior you would expect from someone who is conscious. Surely it's easy to program a robot, for example, that says ow and withdraws its hand when it touches something that's, that's hot, right? You can have heat sensors yes. and it can be programmed to do all that stuff. But that doesn't give me enough reason to think that it's really in pain. And part of the problem is, is because it is so different from me in terms of its uh, makeup. It's different from me in all these other um, respects. And therefore, I'm not confident that it's a reliable extrapolation. Yeah, that, that seems to me to be the problem is differentiating between whether or not consciousness is being duplicated or mimicked. And I think that that would be a hard frog hair to cut. I think so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it is it's just an odd situation because, you know, theoretically, it could be that there is something it is like to be this uh, robot or AI system, and yet we would be in a position of, of being permanently agnostic uh, about it. We hear of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, dual personalities, but most of us only have one consciousness. What's the deal here? Why do we display a so-called unity of consciousness? Let me start out the questioning. What is this so-called unity of consciousness? It's an Aryan philosophy. Is that right? Yeah. Going back a very long way, uh, it's mentioned by Plato and Aristotle and later on by uh, Kant, um, some of the great uh, minds. It's the issue that there seems to be a remarkably singular conscious field. So we can have many experiences concurrently. So when you see a sunset, you hear the, uh, the whooping of cranes go by, uh, you smell the aroma of coffee, um, and you feel the wind going through your hair, and yet all of those are unified in one conscious field. So it's not as if there is um, one consciousness witnessing the sunset, another consciousness hearing the cranes, another one feeling the, the wind, another one smelling the coffee. No, they are all uh, experiences metaphorically located within one field of consciousness. And this problem has become even more remarkable as we know more about the brain, because we now know that the brain is a highly distributed, it's a parallel distributed system. And we know that even with just one object, I mentioned before the example of that blue ball that's bouncing. Well, the part of the brain that's concerned with color, 
and the part of the brain which is concerned with shape and the part that's concerned with motion are all different. And yet we integrate that and we're conscious of one object. So there's, there's, a, there's a unity both in the sense that many experiences belong to one consciousness, but also that we experience objects and activities as integrated wholes uh, within that uh, experience. That is fascinating. I've learned about, what was it? It's called a split brain operation, where people that are epileptic sometimes go in for operations. The neurosurgeon goes in and separates their right and left hemispheres. Because I guess what happens, as I understand it, is that the signal for the epileptic fit starts on one side and is communicated to the other side. But by splitting the brain, you uh, eliminate that path from one side to the other and therefore get rid of the epileptic fits. The part I found fascinating in these split brain experiments, according to talks with Michael Ignor, is that the people don't change their personalities very much. And it seems that they don't change their consciousness. Uh, that, that to me is astonishing. Uh, that really seems to contribute to this idea of unity of consciousness in a very strong way. It, it does, because early on when those experiments were first done or treatments for patients, um, it was thought that, oh, look, we can split consciousness and now there will be two consciousnesses, uh, one for each hemisphere. But uh, Tim Bain, who is uh, an expert on the unity of consciousness, says, no, um, really the best explanation of what is going on is that there is one consciousness that can split its uh, attention, and it's doing two different kinds of processing, um, depending on the, uh, the the hemisphere involved. And so it might be that one, you know, hemisphere doesn't have everything it needs for certain kinds of cognitive tasks. But it's really one consciousness that's splitting its attention uh, two different ways. It's not two uh, different consciousnesses, according to to him. We hear about, at least in the movies, and this is about all I understand about it, of split personalities, people who turn into a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Sally Field uh, starred in a, I forget what the name of the movie is, but it was it was about a girl that had numerous split personalities. And would we say here that this is a uh, an exchange of consciousness? Is this just something in psychology as opposed to philosophy or... What's going on here? Well, it seems to me the best explanation of what's going on is that there is a change in the access to certain information. There's really one subject, but just as in the split brain cases, it can switch its attention. So in these different modes, um, what, what you find is that one personality finds memories and experiences of another personality inaccessible, much like the uh, Jekyll and Hyde account that you gave. But there isn't really a reason to think that there are multiple subjectivities or conscious subjects. It's just that this one subject can enter different modes, and the kind of information and experiences they have in one mode then is not necessarily accessible in uh, another mode. That's interesting. So this this singleness of consciousness is always applicable, but it's like a little switch is thrown to 
switch you from a Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde and you don't relate to the other one while you're doing the uh, the switch. I, I remember the name of the Sally Field movie. It was Sybil, S-Y-B-I-L. Oh. It was yeah. in 1976, and she goes through, because of abuse as a child, all of these split personality uh, traits. So that is really interesting stuff. What is the idea of too many thinkers? That's also a field in philosophy, too many thinkers. Uh, what, what's going on here? It's a, it, the too many thinkers problem is one that arises for what are called the complex views of personal identity. Uh, the simple view of personal identity is that your soul or your mind is always you. Um, that's that's a kind of a dualist view. The complex view is no, it's based on some kind of continuity, either uh, continuity of brain states, physical continuity, or continuity of memories, mental states. And in the scenarios that are described, they create problems uh, for this view. Um, here's a few examples. Um, suppose that there is a an ontological three-dimensional copier, right? It can duplicate people physically. So then you and your doppelganger, which is just like you in every way physically, you kind of share a common origin. This, this copy was made from you and there's continuity. Since the continuity is there, it would seem that there's now two of you. The problem is there can't be two of you because two things cannot be one thing. There's another problem raised by uh, Richard Swinburne. He imagines that he's going to have uh, an operation where each of his cerebral hemispheres is placed in another person. So you've got to think that there are two other people. They have, one of them has a missing left hemisphere. The other one has a missing right hemisphere. Your left hemisphere goes into the first one, your right into the other one. Well, they are continuous with the original you, and so it would seem that if you based identity on continuity, they both have to be you. But they can't both be you because two things cannot be one thing. The options really are either that you don't survive at all or you survive as one of them rather than the other one, but you can't survive as both. And uh, this has been developed even further when we consider... Um, what's necessary for consciousness according to materialism. It must be that it is having the right kind of um, neuro, neurological complexity. Well, the problem is that we see that someone can continue to be conscious even though their brain has been changed by an operation or something has been added to it, and yet they're the same consciousness. Secondly, that over time, uh, your brain, from the point of view of physics, looks mostly like a cloud of, of particles, and yet you remain the same person. Well, here's the difficulty. Um, there are many candidates um, for the brain that could generate consciousness at one time, right? So in other words, your whole brain or many, many subsets of it would all be sufficient, according to materialism, to generate consciousness. So then why aren't you many consciousnesses at one time? Likewise, over time, if your brain is this constantly changing cloud of atoms with bits of matter being added and removed all the time, why don't you keep changing from one consciousness to another? 
In other words, why do we even stay the same person over time at all? Um, and it would be a total fluke to say that all these different clouds of atoms would always produce the same consciousness. Whereas if you take the simple view, well, it's because there's something constant. You're, you have this one soul at and over time, and that explains why you are one consciousness at and over time. The, 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 the physicalism seems to implausibly predict that you should be many consciousnesses at one time and many over time. And this is just not what we uh, observe. You know, I, I, I looked up um, some information where, because one time I heard that the entire mass of your body changes every seven years or something like that. And I, looking deeper into it, that isn't the case. I guess there's cells that change quite a lot and then there's cells that don't change a lot. And one of them, for example, is the, the neurons that you keep the same neurons. One that I was really dismayed to hear about was fat cells, that they, that they last forever. And uh, <laughs> they, they have kind of an immortality associated with it. But it did not address the what you alluded to, which was the idea that they are probably replaced maybe one atom or something, a certain interval of time. And the fact that you remain still the same person is, is frankly astonishing. Yeah, because if 100% of your neurons are sufficient to generate consciousness, and so are 99.9% and 99.8%, when you look at all of those subsets, why doesn't each one of them generate a different consciousness? And the same thing as, yeah, over time, lots of parts are being changed in various ways. Why don't they keep generating different consciousnesses instead of what we see is there's continuity? And we notice from our own experience, because when you're listening, for example, to a phrase uh, in a symphony that you're listening to, you have the sense, ah, yeah, here is that theme coming around again. Mm -hmm. That presupposes that you are the same person who heard that theme the first time. There, there are experiences that we have. Likewise, when you do a demonstration in mathematics and logic, you're reliant on the fact that you're arguing from premises that you previously understood, and you know where you are in the proof based on lines that you have already proved and know what you're moving on to, all of those kinds of thinking presuppose that you're the same person from beginning to the end of the proof. Otherwise, uh -huh. you wouldn't really be the one drawing the conclusion. It would be like one person was studying the problem, and another person, the con conclusion occurred to them, but they didn't reason from the premises to the uh, conclusion. Same with our actions, right? I mean, what's the point of doing all that work uh, in pre-med or pre-law, if it's somebody else who goes to uh, law school or, or med school. Of course, given the debts, you might want to do that, but right. Uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, that's not actually how we think, right? We 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 are we are planning our own future based on our current actions, assuming all the while that it is going to be us that does these things. If we can't account for that kind of identity over time properly. We actually undercut the rationality of, of, of human action. Why is the scientist bothering to do these experiments to uh, you know, confirm or refute his theory if it's not going to be him or her who, who ends up 
um, you know, discovering the results. Let me end our, our discussion together by asking you an outlier question. Uh, Elon Musk is developing something called Neuralink. It's a chip which goes into the brain. And it seems to me that its, its immediate application is going to be to those that are handicapped. It is going to be able to allow them to communicate directly to objects that they can't control normally because of their because of their handicap. Do you see something like Neuralink or augmentation of the human brain ever changing our consciousness and what we consider to be conscious? Well, it's going to depend on what we mean by consciousness because it, it could change our access consciousness. What it can do is it can repair deficits in the flow of information so that now a person is able to say or do something because there was a, a problem in sending that information to uh, their, their organs and they, they were not able to do it, right? And, and likewise with hearing, it's, it's, there are, there are going to be um, chips that will actually um, repair some of the neurological damage and that may restore hearing to people. But it's not that um, the basic ability to be aware of something has been changed. That phenomenal consciousness, either you have it or you don't, it's just that what you're able to access and do with that consciousness will be improved by improving the flow of information to and from your, your consciousness. But it won't change the consciousness per se. Yeah, not what it is in itself, just its contents. In other words, you'll be able to be conscious of some new things. I mean, this is not surprising, really, when you think about it. If you put on you know, infrared goggles, you can see things in the dark that you couldn't see before. That didn't give you a you know, some consciousness that you didn't have in the sense that you were, you went from not being aware to being aware. It's rather that now you are aware of different things. So you've got access to information which you didn't have uh, before. You know, that's interesting. I, when, when I do mathematics, for example, I can only add or multiply two numbers at a time. That's the reason if I multiply like 619 by 413, I have to write it down because that paper is my short-term memory on what I'm doing. I can only I can only do one multiplication and then a carry at a time. And it doesn't seem to me that Neuralink is going to improve that. I think that people think that we are going to be super people with super abilities to think and create, but I, I cannot comprehend that improving what I do, which is kind of one thing at a time, with, of course, a short memory. You mentioned about doing a proof. You have to have that short-term memory about where you're going and what you're trying to accomplish. But I don't see that as helping very much. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the instruments will obviously speed up the time before we get to a result. But really what we're doing is we're delegating something to a machine, just like when we use a calculator or a, a computer it doesn't in and of itself make us any more conscious. So we will, we will be aware of the answer more quickly, but we won't be aware of thinking to the answer more quickly because, in fact, this device is going to be doing that transformation for us. Yeah, that's interesting. I think probably with the Neuralink, I could say what's 438 times 528 and just refer it to a search engine and they'll give me the answer without me going through all of these steps at a time. So I can see yeah. uh, acceleration in, in that sort of sense. Great. 
we have been talking to Dr. Angus Manouche about some some fascinating things on the unity of consciousness and the idea of too many thinkers, some philosophy that I think has some great applications in artificial intelligence. And we thank Dr. Manouche for the time that he spent with us. Dr. Manouche is a professor and chair of philosophy at Concordia University. And we're going to have a lot of information in the podcast notes about Uh, links to his books and some of the other things that are going on in his world. And we will continue this next time on Mind Matters News. Until then, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.